Well, good morning, everyone. So we've been uh, working our way through the second letter of Peter. And last or two weeks ago, um, we started into chapter one. We covered some background of this letter written to the same group of people that Peter had written his first letter to. Um, We only made it as far as verse four. So today, hopefully, we'll make it a little further down, chapter 1. If you all just want to stand, we'll read verses 1 through 15 again. Chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. You can be seated. So if you remember the background to this, Peter is writing to the, the Christians that are dispersed throughout what is now northern Turkey. And he is foreseeing that they are about to come onto some hard times. That there's going to be opposition to their faith. And he wants them to be prepared. And, and we saw how that in the first letter of Peter, he showed them how that their hope, the hope that was laid up for them was to be an anchor for them when they faced all kinds of trials and as their faith was being tested. And now in this letter, he wants to remind them again of the things that he's talked to them about before. But he's also addressing some of the dangers that are going to come from within. False teachers that are going to rise up from among them and are going to distort the message of Christ. Uh, so so last uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, some of the first four verses here, 
and it's really incredible um, the way that, that Peter opens up and he addresses them, even though he himself was a witness of Jesus, he walked with Jesus in the flesh for, for several years, he witnessed all sorts of amazing things. He, he addresses them as believers who had obtained a faith of equal standing with his, with the other apostles who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus. So I used to have a, a job where I spent a lot of time reconciling. At the, at the end of the month, your bank statement, your bank sends you a statement that, that says what happened in your account, how much you have in there, how, how many transactions, both negative and positive, occurred. And, and one of the things we do is, is we look at our record of the transactions and we reconcile them. We want them to match exactly what the bank says occurred, right? And so we, we would spend hours meticulously comparing thousands of transactions to, to the sums that the bank said had happened. So two weeks ago, we looked at the bank statement, a faith of equal standing with ours. And Peter says his divine power, speaking of Christ, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's your bank statement. That's the reality for everyone who is in Christ. And now in verse 5, he turns to the reconciliation of the fruit of that deposit in us. And he wants us to, to, to look at the outcome, the outworking, of what is coming out of us because of that deposit. He says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So he starts with, for this very reason. Well, what's the reason that he's talking about? Well, it's that Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And remember, we looked up close at the provision of Christ in our life. And if you weren't here two weeks ago, I, I recommend you go back and maybe listen to that because um, I think today is going to feel a little lopsided without the introduction to, to this letter, the first four verses. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And through the knowledge, the epinosis of him who called us to his own glory and virtue, by which, that is his own glory and virtue, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And it's through these promises that we become partakers of his divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And now he's saying, because of all this, because of the reality of what has happened in you through Christ taking up residence in you, make every effort. I think there's maybe some tension between the first four verses of this letter and the next section, the next seven or so. The tension between what God has done for us and what he expects of us. Our response to what he has done, our response to the deposit. Um, D.A. Carson said, 
The dominant biblical pattern is neither let go and let God, nor God has done his bit and now it's all up to you, but rather since God is powerfully working in you, you yourself must make every effort. I think that's a really important point in this passage. And really all of the instructions that we find in the New Testament. Because God, therefore you. Paul told the Philippians, he said, Beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and And to work for his good pleasure. So you work out your salvation because it's God who's at work in you. And he's creating in you both the desire and the ability to work out his good pleasure. Hebrews 13 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will. So he equips us so that we can do his will. If you think of of a garden, you can have a garden with the perfect soil, the perfect nutrients. But if that garden is not producing something, it's really worthless. It's just sitting there idle. You can have the best soil with all the correct nutrients, the right amount of nitrogen and phosphorus and and the right pH. But it's, it's useless if it sits there and produces nothing. It has to produce something. It has to produce out of the investment that has been put into it. Same with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul told the Colossians, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy That he powerfully works in me. I love this picture. I toil. I'm laboring with all my might. But I'm working with his energy that he has, that he powerfully works in me. And now Peter is saying, God has given you all the resources that you need. He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. Don't waste those resources. Put forth every effort. To make sure that what he has invested in you is producing the fruit that he wants. He has given us great and precious promises through which we've become partakers of the divine nature. Now don't remain barren and unfruitful. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, this word supplement is, is an interesting word. It's used only five times in the, New, in the New Testament. And two of those times are right here in this text. Epicoriego. The, the English word for chorus and choreograph comes from the root of this word. And, and it, it was a word that was used to refer to a chorus master. In, in ancient Greece... The, the state established a chorus, but it was the chorus master, it was the chorus director who, who made provision for the chorus. In, in fact, there were wealthy people who were invested in the arts. They loved the arts and they wanted to see um, these grand productions put on. And they would invest from their own resources into these productions. They would provide the finances for it. They would hire 
the best singers and actors and dancers to put on these incredible displays of art. And it was because of their generous provision for these works of art that this word eventually came to mean to furnish or to supply in abundance. Now, I don't know that that Peter necessarily used this word to refer exactly to this picture, but that's what the word came to mean. And I love the picture it gives. A chorus master richly supplying everything that's needed for the production of a grand chorus. Or you could picture it as maybe the arrangement of choreographic movements in a dance. You put them all together and you create a beautifully fluid artistic production that is an absolute joy to witness. The provision is coming from the chorus master. He's making sure that everything's in place, that everyone has what they need to put together this performance. And I love the way Peter uses this word here in in verse 5 and again in verse 11. You make every effort to epicoriego these qualities to your faith. To supplement your faith with these qualities. Verse 5. And if you practice these qualities, verse 11, in this way there will be richly epicoriego, the same word again, provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So while we are making every effort to supplement our faith, in the end, it is God who makes the provision. He's the one who makes the provision for us. He is the chorus master who's making abundant provision, who has provided us with everything that we need, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, at the outset, you remember Peter had established that their faith was of equal standing with his own, with the other apostles who had been eyewitnesses of Christ in the flesh. But now he's saying this faith, if unaccompanied by fruit, will not do. You must make every effort to have a faith that produces fruit. He's squarely agreeing with James who said, show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James goes so far as to say, your faith, if it does not produce the right kind of fruit, is like a body that doesn't have its spirit. We call that a dead corpse. You know what happens to a dead corpse. You don't want to hang around with it very long, right? And Peter's affirming this. Make every effort to ensure that your faith is genuine, fruit-producing faith. Faith that is the result of the divine power of Christ at work in you. Supplement your faith with virtue. This, is the, this word for virtue is the same word that was translated excellence in verse 3. He has called us to his own glory and excellence or virtue. And I, again, I just love the way that Peter uses this word in, in two different contexts in, in parallel. You have been called to Christ's glory and excellence. Now make every effort to supplement your faith with excellence. With virtue. If, if you've watched someone who, um, who loves to tinker with cars, or who's really interested in cars, um, they'll, they'll buy a really amazing car and, and they admire all of its capabilities, all 500 horsepower of it. 
But they're not just satisfied with leaving it at that. They want to give it the best care they can. They, they put the best things into this vehicle so that it will give the maximum output and provide them with the maximum longevity. They're not satisfied just with what the vehicle comes with. They want to make sure that it is producing what it was meant to produce. It's not enough to have just a skeleton of faith, just a verbal profession of faith. It must be accompanied by excellence, virtue. And supplement your virtue with knowledge, gnosis. If you remember, we talked about knowledge two weeks ago. It is through the knowledge, the epinosis of him who called us to his own glory and excellence that we have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. And you remember that he uses two words for knowledge in this passage. Gnosis, a cursory knowledge, a general knowledge, what you observe about something, and epinosis, which is a more full or perfect or intimate knowledge, knowing up close. And here he uses gnosis. But don't undervalue the importance of knowing about, knowing about Jesus. General knowledge. The knowledge that we, that we acquire a little bit at a time builds into knowing more fully, more perfectly, knowing who Jesus is. All of you, if you've walked with, with Christ for a number of years, you know him better now than you did when you started out you know more about who he is and what he's like now i've been married to melissa for about 16 years and we're still supplementing our relationship with gnosis things that we learn about each other and you know what the result is epinosis a more full knowing each other a true knowing intimate knowing that's how he wants us to come to know him. We, we come to know Christ a little bit at a time. But you can't love someone you don't know. You have to know who he is. What he's like. What he's done for you. Now look down at verse 8. For if these qualities are in you and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. So gnosis leads to effective and fruitful epinosis. What you learn about Christ, what you come to know about him, will lead to a fuller, fruitful, effective knowing up close. Lindley Roberts said this, At the outset, we need to realize there's no substitute for knowledge. Christian virtues are important, and we must give diligence to cultivate them in our lives, but it is futile to attempt to do so apart from a knowledge of the truth. It is impossible to grow the flowers of grace and love without the soil of truth. In other words, virtues do not exist very long out of their proper context or environment. And obviously, this, this knowledge of God has to come from the Holy Spirit. It's not just an intellectual undertaking of learning about in our head. It is through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, and it's guided by the Word of God. But you know what? He doesn't just hand out the knowledge of God to those who don't want it, to those who don't pursue it. That's what Peter's saying. Make every effort to supplement, to add 
knowledge. And to your knowledge, add self-control. I think we've all probably witnessed or maybe experienced in our own lives what knowledge without self-control looks like. It can be really gross when you wield knowledge without self-control. And it's interesting that a fruit of the Spirit is not out of control, where the Spirit just takes over and He just drives you and does whatever He wants with you, but it is self-control. You see, He wants what he wants from us is not to control us against our will, but for our will to be yielded to his will, to become one with his will, to where we are making every effort to supplement our knowledge with self-control, yielded to his spirit. And add to your self-control, supplement your self-control with steadfastness. That means cheerful, hopeful endurance. Constancy. It's hopeful endurance because like Jesus, we see the end. We're not in it just for what we get out of it now, but we're looking toward the end. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, we don't use that word steadfastness all that much in modern English. The, the New English Translation Translator's Note says that a good colloquial rendering of this might be stick to itiveness. In other words, when when it's difficult, that's when you stick with it. This is a result of the Spirit working in us, us, of us cultivating the work of the Spirit in our lives, is that when it becomes difficult, we'll stick it out. We'll have endurance. And you remember the, the background that we looked at of what the believers were facing in northern Turkey and what they were about to face over the next 50 years or so. Peter is giving them a word of how to prepare. You must have endurance. It's going to be difficult, but it's for the hope that is set in front of you that you will endure like Christ endured. I remember um, on Bible Project, I think it was probably about 18 years ago, it's in a um, kind of a remote part of Lempida in Honduras. There was this little old man who was not able to read, but he would spend his days listening to preaching on on his little black radio. And occasionally he would preach, and he had to preach from memory because he couldn't couldn't read the Bible for himself. But I very clearly remember something that he said. He was talking about, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And he said this, he said, El que persevere hasta el fin será salvo, pero el que se queda medio camino, ahí se queda pues. And the the words have stuck with me for the last 18 years. He said, the one who stays at at halfway down the road, there he'll stay. It's, It's true. The reward is only for those who persist, who endure. Jesus himself, when he was telling his disciples what was going to happen in the end times, he said that it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. And Peter's telling these believers You're going to fall on hard times. You need endurance. You need perseverance. You need stick-to-itiveness. Remember something else Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21. He said, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. 
Hebrews 10 says, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's for those who stick it out to the end. And supplement your steadfastness with godliness. We already encountered this word in verse 3, where we see that Christ's divine power has given us, has granted us, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now he's saying, add this to the qualities that you possess. Genuine faith in Christ will produce godliness, reverent posture toward God, holiness. This requires the true faith that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot be self-controlled and godly through sheer determination and grit. We need the Holy Spirit working in us. But as we yield ourselves to him, these qualities will increase in us. It's precisely because of this. It's because you can't do it on your own strength. That the false teachers, which Peter addresses in the next chapter, divorce faith from conduct. They were teaching that you didn't need to have conduct or holiness that aligns with your faith. It was enough to have a profession of faith. So to solve the problem, because they didn't have the empowerment to live godly and holy lives, they created a counterfeit faith that didn't require a change of nature. And they end up following their own sensuality and denying the master that bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. True faith, Peter says, will produce godliness. And supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. There's a progression here. Godliness is, is focused on the posture that we have toward God. It's not just, but it's not just me and God. It will extend to the people around me. And it's, he uses imagery here of family. We, we have affection for each other like family. Now, I think there's a degree to which there is natural affection among siblings. But it's not all just natural. It needs to be cultivated in us. And we need to do sometimes a quick assessment of our lives and say, is there brotherly affection? Is there sibling affection coming from my life for the body of Christ, for the believers around me, for brothers and sisters that I interact with? Isn't this also maybe a test as to the genuineness of our godliness? Do we look to the needs of others or just looking out for our own interests? We don't always feel warm and fuzzy feelings towards our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we might feel threatened or disliked or mistreated. And it requires us to make every effort to supplement godliness with brotherly affection. And then he comes to the final quality, the apex, the crowning quality. Supplement brotherly affection with love. See, without love, all the rest of this is worthless. First Corinthians tells us that. Everything else is worthless if it's not accompanied by love, if it's not worked out in us through love. First John 4 says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 
It's by our love one for another that we're known to be disciples of Jesus. We could spend all week just studying this one quality of love without exhausting it. But isn't that the point? That there's a progressive building of these qualities in us. You don't immediately reach the fullness of these qualities in your life. And Peter's saying, even though you have this deposit in you of Christ having provided you everything that you need for life and godliness, you must put forth every effort to add these qualities to your faith and to see that they're increasing in you. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are yours. You already possess them. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. We're already partakers of his divine nature through the precious and great promises he has given us. At the same time, these qualities are increasing in us. There's progressive growth and sanctification. It's not enough to simply possess some of these qualities some of the time. They must be in us and be increasing. And I wonder how much intentional effort and energy we put toward increasing these qualities in us. I think especially as men, we're very geared toward success. We get our identity from what we do from being good at what we do, from how successful our business is, from, from how good we are at, at whatever the role is that we're filling, even, even at how we raise our kids or our families. But how much of our time and energy is consumed by developing these qualities in ourselves? By making sure that these qualities are in us and are increasing. If our consuming desire was to develop the character of Christ in us, we're going to see an increase. We're going to see growth in that. <clears throat> we're making every effort to supplement our faith. Like Paul said, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in us. And what's the result? These qualities keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This implies that you can have knowledge of Jesus, I think we would probably tend to frame it as a relationship with Jesus and be ineffective and unfruitful. But you can't stay in Christ and remain unfruitful. It's not possible. Do you know that? You can't be connected to Christ and stay unfruitful. Because if you stay unfruitful, you will be cut off. Jesus said in John 15, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear, bear more fruit. You see, the qualities are there and they are increasing. If you are in Christ, these qualities will be increasing in you. Contrast that to someone who does not have those qualities. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And Peter's shooting straight here. He's saying that if we profess to have the knowledge of Christ, but we're not producing these qualities, if these qualities are not in us, if we lack them, we can't even see where we're going. 
Nearsightedness gives a picture of someone who can only see what's right in front of them. They can't see out there. They can't see into the future. The promises of God are, are clouded by other desires. And they can't see the past. They can't see that they have been cleansed from their former sins. The only thing they can see is what's right here, what's immediately in front of them. Their, their own desires. Would you trust someone like that to drive you to town if they can't see beyond the steering wheel? They are nearsighted to the point of being blind. Peter is, I think, laying the groundwork for addressing the false teachers that were sneaking into the church. He says in chapter 2 that these were people who were enticing others by sensual passions of the flesh. Their message was one of freedom. But they themselves had become slaves to corruption. The very things that they claimed were freedom for them were actually enslaving them. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It's not that they had never known the truth. They had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But after receiving the knowledge of the truth, they were again entangled in them and overcome. And he says their last state is worse for them. Than the first. In fact, he says their condition is so bad that it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness at all than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment that was delivered to them. They are, he says, like a dog that vomits and then goes back and licks up his own vomit. And Peter is telling believers don't fall for this kind of faith. That does not produce the qualities of faith. That does not produce these qualities that are increasing in you. Make every effort to add these qualities to your faith. Therefore, brothers, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I think I asked this two weeks ago. Raise your hand if you are called and elected. If God has called you and you are elected. So if we have that calling and election, we must put forth diligence to confirm it. This is an echo of what he said previously. Make every effort. There's a sense of urgency. Be sure to confirm your calling and election. I really struggled with this passage, honestly, because I think it can easily be misunderstood where, in our, where we set out to be diligent to confirm our own election and calling through our works. Rather than seeing the fruit of faith as a test of the genuineness of what God has done in us. Practice these qualities these qualities are the fruit that is produced by the Spirit living in us. But you have to give Him freedom of expression. Now, there's a, there's a freedom of speech that you can hang on to. Give the Holy Spirit freedom of speech, freedom of expression through your life. Allow Him to work in you to produce the fruit of genuine faith. Because when you do this, if you practice these qualities... You will never fall. You'll never stumble. Your footing will, will remain sure. Hebrews 6 talks about land 
that has received rain. The rain has fallen on it, and it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. That land receives a blessing from God. That's what land is for. It's to produce fruit. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then he says, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Have the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. In verse 11, Peter says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you, An entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you earn your way into the kingdom by practicing faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love? Absolutely not. But the fruit of faith that is in us and that is increasing will result in these qualities growing in us. It's the proof that God's Spirit is in us and working for us, an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit works in a responsive heart. I I read somewhere, and I tried to find some statistics. I don't know what actual statistics are, but I read that most Christians struggle with assurance of salvation. With knowing whether or not they are really saved. And Peter says that if you pay attention to these qualities and you make sure that they are in you and they are increasing, you will have assurance. There will be an abundant entrance that's provided for you into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. That's a different slant than, than what we often look at. We often, we often talk about simply the reality of what Christ has done, knowing that reality, that that's what provides assurance for us. Peter is saying, actually, the evidence that comes out of your life is part of that assurance, part of that knowing that he has made an entrance for you into his kingdom is the fruit that, that is objectively observable in your life. Galatians 4 says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's more than just a catchphrase. It's more than just a feeling or emotion where we feel like we are saved. He's saying there's objective evidence when the spirit of God has worked genuine faith in a believer because these qualities will be in you and they'll be increasing. You can be that child who looks into his father's eyes with confidence and says, I belong to him. I know that is my father. I have his DNA. B.B. Warfield said this, Peter exhorts us to make our calling and election sure, precisely by diligence in good works. He does not mean that by good works we may secure from God a degree of election. He means that by expanding the germ of spiritual life, 
which we have received from God into its full effervescence by working out our salvation, of course not without Christ, but in Christ, we can make ourselves sure that we have really received the election to which we make claim. Good works become thus the mark and test of election. And when taken in the comprehensive sense in which Peter is here thinking of them, they are the only marks and tests of election. We can never know that we are elected of God to eternal life except by manifesting in our lives the fruit of election, faith and virtue, knowledge and temperance, patience and godliness, love of the brothers. It is idle to seek assurance of election outside holiness of life. Precisely what God chose his people to before the foundation of the world was that they should be holy. Holiness, because it is the necessary product, is therefore the sure sign of election. You want to be sure of your calling and election? Put forth diligence to make sure that these qualities are in you and are increasing. You know what? This is the hardest sermon I've preached here in in probably a couple of years. And I'm not exactly sure why. Except I think that maybe we have partially divorced the fruit of faith from a head knowledge of what Christ has done. And we're afraid of examining fruit in our own life. But that is how false teachers come in and take people after them and distort the gospel is by denying the power of God. They have a form of godliness, but they, they deny the power of it. And guys, if we're really disciples of Jesus, we must not be afraid to look at our lives and say, am I producing the real, genuine fruit of faith? Maybe our lack of assurance is not ungrounded. Maybe it's because we have a lack of fruit. Assurance is objective. You can know without a shadow of a doubt because you look at your life and you say, yes, that's the DNA of Jesus himself coming through me. And it's not because of my own power or goodness, but it's because of His Spirit working in me. And that's how the world looks at us. And they know that we're genuine and not fake. Because most of the people who profess Christ around us are fake. They profess Him with their lips, but their, their lives deny His power. And Peter is sending this letter to the church Just before he dies, he tells them, I know that I'm going to put this tent off just soon. I'm going to die just soon because Jesus revealed that to me. But he says, I'm going to keep keep reminding you of these qualities. 
even though you know them and you've been established in them, I'm going to keep reminding you, I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. You know this stuff already, but you need reminding of it. So that after my departure, you can recall the things that I've taught you. And we're going to see in the next chapter why that is so important. Guys, we're living in the last days. We're in the very last days. And Jesus said that when we come up to the last days, the first thing we need to do is to watch out so that no one leads us astray. We need to be rooted in the truth that we already know. We need to remind ourselves of it and cultivate it. And, and make sure that its fruit is in us and is increasing. Because that's what keeps us from being ineffectual, ineffective, and unfruitful in the knowledge of God. That is how an entrance will be abundantly provided. It doesn't say you're going to manage to secure an entrance. It says an entrance will be abundantly provided to you. As you examine your life and you make sure that the qualities of faith are in you and are increasing. I just want to go back to to the beginning of this chapter. Verse 3 and 4. And we're just going to end on this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It has a little bit of a different slant now that we see how it's worked out in us, right? That glory and excellence that he calls us to is not just justification. It's not just knowing about it here, but there is sanctification, progressive sanctification as we grow into his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, that you've called us to your own glory and excellence. And we want to see the fruit of genuine faith coming out of our lives, not stagnating, not staying level, but increasing in us. And I pray, Lord, that this week you would give us the ability to objectively examine the fruit of our lives. To see whether our faith is genuine. To see whether the outworking of our faith reconciles to the deposit that you've put in us. Thank you for the knowledge of Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to know your son. Thank you for making yourself known to us through the word made flesh. We want to grow in that knowledge and understanding and in surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.